Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. Okay, while we're getting started tonight, I just uh, want to make sure that uh, never want to be in a position where anybody's here against their will, that anybody here just isn't happy with whatever's going on. And I got a little advertisement in the mail today that I thought I would share with everybody just in case you uh, had wanderlust. We have a church down the road here that's advertising that they guarantee a sermon under 29 minutes or your donut is free. (laughs) We'd be giving away a lot of free donuts. You know, you don't have much to say if you got to if you're going to keep it under 30 minutes to begin with. But if you have to bribe people with free donuts, and they're not they they don't even look like Shipley donuts, then you know that that there there's not going to be much spiritual manna from the Word of God. Uh. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this uh, evening, let's just have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're ready to study the Word and fellowship with the Lord and uh, allow the Holy Spirit to teach us from His Word this evening. Let's, uh, I'll have a few moments of silent prayer and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful that we can gather this evening, that we can study your word, that we can be refreshed, strengthened, encouraged by the eternal truths that you have revealed to us down through the ages in the 66 books of the Bible. Father, we're also thankful to have Eager with us from uh, Ukraine. We're thankful for his ministry and the way that you have worked in his life over the last several years and the ministries that you have opened up for him. We look forward to hearing from him. Now, Father, as we study and begin to get into our study of 1 Kings. We pray that you'd help us to see how this fits within the flow of history and how these lessons that we learn not only relate to our own spiritual life, but also to understanding that the same trends of history that occurred in the Old Testament with Israel occur today with many nations, including our own, throughout the world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are in 1 Kings 1, and tonight we will get into at least the first few verses. Here's a little outline. I put this up last time just to bring us all back together and get focused on what is happening here. That the writer of Hebrews, I mean of 1 Kings, Hebrews is Thursday, writer of Kings, 
sets this up, and he's really tracing out the Davidic covenant. So what we have is in the, the narrative in the first 11 chapters is the transition from the Davidic kingship. God provides for the transition of the kingship from David to Solomon in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. That's the first 11 chapters. The first part of that is a transfer of the kingdom from David to Solomon. That's the subject of 1.1 down through 2.12. And one that can be further subdivided into two sections. Chapter 1 covers the coronation of Solomon, despite the fact that Adonijah, a brother, half-brother, uh, makes a power grab. He, he tries to uh, seize the throne, the, the transfer of power away from Solomon. And then the second part of that has to do with David's final exhortation, his last words to Solomon regarding covenant faithfulness and dealing with David's foes and friends in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. So I pointed out the last time, there's two major doctrines, or three major doctrines, that we need to keep in mind as we go through this. The first has to do with the promises of God. God promised David that Solomon would sit on his throne, and we know that from a couple of different passages. Last time we looked at 1 Chronicles chapter 22, verses 6 and following, and we saw that David told Solomon sometime prior to this event that God had told him that Solomon would be the one to build a house for the Lord to be the temple and that Solomon would be his heir. Furthermore, according to this passage, as we go through it, we'll see that David uh, told Bathsheba this. And this happens before God, that God formalizes the Davidic covenant with David. So it was clear within the, the household of David, which would, of course, include Adonijah and the other, the other sons, that God had made it clear that Solomon was the heir. And so that makes Adonijah's coup uh, even more uh, insidious because he is... Complete, we see that he must be completely apart, away from the Lord in his own spiritual life. Last time I went back to looking at the background, we have to look at all of these books in terms of the covenants. And the first and most important covenant, of course, is the Mosaic Covenant because that's the one that is most, uh, <clears throat> most directly applicable to Israel at this time. And in the Mosaic Covenant, you had promises of blessing for obedience and curses or judgments for disobedience. And I'm not going to go through everything I did last time, but Deuteronomy 28.1, 28 through 30 is a key chapter, key chapters there, and you really ought to take some time to read through those three chapters and just to see what God promised in terms of blessing and judgment. And when you get to chapter 30, Pay attention to the promise to bring them back from all the earth to the land, that, that restoration uh, from all the earth. But in Deuteronomy 28.1, Moses reminds the people, Now it shall come to pass, if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe carefully all his commandments which I command you today, that the Lord will, your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And the word there for obedience is uh, shema, meaning to listen, to hear, 
to regard, thus to listen with obedience. The idea in Scripture of hearing isn't just sort of academic, detached, uh, listening and understanding for sort of an academic purpose, but it is always for the purpose of application and obedience. That's what you see even in the New Testament with James. Don't be hearers only, but doers or appliers of the word. And in Deuteronomy 28.10, we see that the purpose for this is to be a witness to all the earth, that all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by my name, and they shall be afraid of you. And that God's purpose was to make Israel the head and not the tail in Deuteronomy 28.13. However, they are warned later after that verse that that disobedience will bring discipline. And one of the aspects of discipline in Deuteronomy 28.24 had to do with agricultural loss. They would lose their uh, agricultural fertility. The Lord will change the rain of your land to powder and to dust, and from heaven it shall come down on you until you are destroyed. That is the powder and dust, the heat, the famine, the drought. Verse 25, the Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them, and you shall become troublesome to all the kingdoms of the earth. Now, my, 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 we could say that that was applicable today, that Israel is a major problem in terms of a world peace. Verse 26, Deuteronomy 28, 26, your carcasses shall be food for all the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. No one shall frighten them away. Now we went through the all the prom, the various promises, the blessing and the cursing, God's promise of future restoration. But then the 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 um the covenant with Abraham is expanded further with David, and there's a hint of this in 1 Chronicles 15:1 that David built houses for himself in the city of David. He built his own palace and he prepared a place for the ark, pitched a tent for it, but he wanted to build a house, a permanent dwelling place for God. And God came along to him and said that, that no, you're not going to build a house for me. I will build a house for you, meaning a dynasty, an eternal dynasty. And this is the Davidic covenant, which grows out of the Abrahamic covenant. Remember the three elements in the Abrahamic covenant were land, seed, and blessing. Land, seed, and blessing. The land promise in the Abrahamic covenant was expanded in Deuteronomy 30 with the uh, Israel land covenant. The seed aspect is expanded in the Davidic covenant. I pointed out last time that literally in the Hebrew it says that your seed will be on the throne forever. And so that word seed is so important because it connects the Davidic covenant directly back to the Abrahamic covenant and further back to the seed of the woman in Genesis 3:15, And then later there's the new covenant, Jeremiah 31. Now, as we went through the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7 last week, I decided to break it down into a chart. So we have the Davidic covenant. The key verses are 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 16, Psalm 89, which is a meditation on the Davidic covenant, and then 1 Chronicles 17, 11 to 14. 
Second Samuel 7 focuses more on the earthly aspect of the descendant of David, the seed of David down through Solomon, whereas Chronicles focuses more on its eternal result, which is, of course, uh, fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's three elements that are resolved to the Davidic covenant. The first that are promised in the Davidic covenant, the first is that God promises an eternal house. That is an eternal dynasty. This is in 2 Samuel 11, verses 13a. Or, excuse me, that should be 2 Samuel 7. 7, verses uh, 11, 13a, and 16. 2 Samuel 7, 11, 13a, and 16. And 1 Chronicles 17, 10. Then God promised an eternal kingdom that the kingdom would be without end in 2 Samuel 7, 12c and 2nd and 1 Chronicles, 1 Chronicles 17, 14. And then an eternal throne, 2 Samuel 7, 13 and 1 Chronicles 17, 12b and 14. So an eternal house, an eternal kingdom, and an eternal throne. Now it's obvious from this that the this covenant can't be fulfilled in Solomon because Solomon's not eternal. He's just a human being. And uh, no other fully human son is capable of fulfilling this. So it begins to be clear, and we'll see in a couple of passages before we're done, that the fulfillment of this has to be in a person who is also God. So the this idea that Jesus or the Messiah would be God does not just pop up when Jesus comes at the first advent. It was very clear from numerous passages in the Old Testament. So when you get out and you see these attacks today, and they're becoming more and more prevalent, more and more books are being written that are that are assuming things that are <clears throat> part of the fictional package of the Da Vinci Code, but there are non-fiction works being written. Jesus was just a man. He may have gotten married. He wasn't, of course, divine. That These things were all invented by the early church, especially at the Council of Nicaea in 325. And all of this is just blatantly false when you understand the Old Testament background. The Jews at the time of Christ, understood, not all of them, but many understood from the Old Testament that the Messiah was divine, that he was eternal. Now, last time we looked at the Davidic covenant and just broke it down into these sections, the scripture, which we've already looked at. The covenant is between God as party of the first part, David as party of the second part. It is a royal grant type of treaty where the king freely, graciously bestows blessing upon uh, his subject, and it is designed to protect uh, the subject. The importance of it is that it extends the promise, the seed promise of the Abrahamic covenant uh, down through David. The provisions we have gone through last time, it's, uh, it's confirmed, uh, through the birth of Solomon and the, the uh, elevation of Solomon to the throne, and then it, its extent will go on down through until it is fulfilled in the person 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. And its status is that it is an unconditional covenant. Now, this covenant forms a backdrop for a number of passages later on in Scripture. I just wanted to put a few of these up on the screen for you so that you can see how they relate. In Isaiah, there's the promise related to the Messiah, familiar promise to us, that says, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And this term son is particularly pregnant with the meaning of son of David. A son will be given to us. The fact that a child will be born to us indicates his humanity. The fact that a son will be given to us relates to this Davidic sonship that has divine overtones, because by this time you've got Psalm 110.1, the Lord said to my Lord, uh, other passages that indicate his deity. A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Now, eternal father, it does not mean that the son is the father. This is really a poor translation that you find in all your English translations. The Hebrew phrase should be translated father of eternity, indicating his eternal nature. And how that reminds us of the fact that God promised David an eternal house, an eternal throne, an eternal kingdom. He is father of eternity or he is eternal. That's a, a Hebraism for uh, his for characterizing him that way. He's the Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom. See, it directly ties this son to the Davidic kingdom and the Davidic throne, on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Then in Isaiah 11.1, we have the prophecy that this comes again from David, who is the son of Jesse. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. What's interesting about this is the prophetic element here, because the picture is of a stump that dies. Now, it appears that the stump related to the lineage from Jesse dies out. And where is it today? But yet a, something, a new shoot will come out of this stump from Jesse. And that is a reference to the fact of the future restoration of the kingdom under the, under the Messiah. A branch from his roots will bear fruit. And that is a messianic implication related to the millennial kingdom that this is yet future. Jeremiah also makes these same allusions. Um, Jeremiah 23.5, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I shall raise up for David a righteous branch. And see, that term branch goes back to that same illustration of a branch or stem coming up from the, from the root or the trunk, the stump of Jesse. Uh, when I shall raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. Now, there's another thing that we notice in both the Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 passage, and here is that the, the that which characterizes the one who fulfills the Davidic covenant is that his reign is characterized by righteousness and justice. Did that Was that true of Solomon's reign? No. See, that's what we're going to see 
in our study of kings is that as you go through Solomon and then Rehoboam and then the various kings in the south as well as the kings in the north, that none of them, it becomes apparent that no human king can fulfill this requirement to provide a, a king that it, it acts wisely and does justice and righteousness in the land. No human king can do that. It is, therefore, one application of this, this is good for, as we approach the election cycle, is that politics, human politics and political leaders aren't the answer. It is a fool who puts his trust in the arm of flesh. And down through even the kingdom of Israel, we see that even when you had great kings, they failed greatly. And we cannot expect uh, the United States to be any different from any other kingdom. We are uh, destined for collapse and destined for uh, ultimate failure. It's just that we don't want that to occur while we're alive. But we may be part of that generation. So Jeremiah says, now it's interesting, I've quoted from Isaiah, and I've quoted from Jeremiah. Both of these prophets function within the time framework of Second Kings primarily. And they are saying that same thing. So we'll go to the prophets a lot because you have uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and then the all but the last three of the twelve uh, that Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are written after the return from Babylon. The other nine, nine of the twelve, are all written during the time frame of First Kings, Second Kings, and they are the prophets who give the historical or they give the divine interpretation of the historical events that are coming on. That's why very few people tackle trying to teach. Kings is because kings gives the historical framework and the prophets give the divine interpretation of a lot of that history. And that covers about half the Old, the Old Testament. So it's a lot to bite off. We won't go through every detail or be the rest of my life. Although it'll be fun. Jeremiah 30 verse 8 and 9. It shall come about on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, that I will break his yoke from off their neck and will tear off their bonds, and strangers shall no longer make them their slaves. But they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. This is written centuries after David died, and it is a millennial promise by Jeremiah that he will break his yoke off their neck, that is the yoke of the, at the time it's fulfilled of the Antichrist, the coming, the end times king. He will bring freedom to them and they will serve the Lord their God and David their king. But David's already dead when he writes this. It says David their king whom I will, future tense, raise up. So we know that David will be in the resurrection and will be reigning over Israel during the millennial kingdom. As uh, <clears throat> Jesus will be reigning on the earth, but David will be the prince reigning over uh, the nation Israel. Amos 9.11, In that day, again a reference to the millennial kingdom, the restoration, In that day I will raise up the fallen booth of David, and wall up its breaches, I will also raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. So we see that this 
theme of the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant runs through the rest of the Old Testament. Now remember, last time I pointed out that the context of the Davidic covenant is David's desire to build a temple in uh, in Jerusalem. Now I have some pictures for you here to give you a little bit idea, a little bit of an idea of what Jerusalem looked like at that particular time. Now, let's put this first picture up here. Here is a picture of Jerusalem at the time of King David. It's not very large. It's just a a ridge line, sort of a finger that comes down and up in the top right corner of the picture, you see the, the, the hilltop that is Mount Moriah, and that is the threshing floor of Yeruna the Hittite, and this is where David constructs a somewhat permanent facility for the ark once he moved it up there. And he laid the groundwork for building the, the temple. He never he was not allowed by God to build the temple, but he entered into agreements with Hiram of Tyre he, to, to start bringing materials in. He began to uh, level the, uh, the, the mountain in order to put a permanent structure there and to set things up for the construction of the temple. This is going to be a large part of what we do as we go through as we go through this particular study, but I wanted you to get get a little bit of this image. What you have here in this area, this is the uh, uh, artist reconstruction of David's palace here, and this is you can't see it so much in this picture, but you have a this is a, a quite a downhill grade going from up here all the way down. In fact, almost th- this is in an area today that is. Um, uh, or probably right about here you have a, an observation post, and you can stand there and look down, and almost everybody stands there, and they look down, and they go, ah, now I understand how David was on top of his palace and looked down and saw Bathsheba taking a bath. Is because everything is, you know, just falls out below you as you look down this ridge line. And this area, right, you have a path coming down from this gate, Right down here, and this is the spring of Gihon, also known as Shloach, which is where we get later the Greek form, the Pool of Siloam, which is actually they built a tunnel from here up to this particular area. And then there's another pool further down. It's not on this drawing. And that's both of these are uh, part of the action in 1 Kings chapter 1. Here's another uh, artist rendition. This is a little later period because you already have the Solomonic temple built up above. But again, it gives you a little bit of an idea of what the city of David looked like. And this area off here, right where I'm pointing here, is where the pool of, uh, right up in here would be where the springs of Gihon are located. And then the one that is where Adonijah is going to uh, get anointed is further down in this area. Okay, let me go back and find our slide. All right, that brings us now to chapter 1, verse 1. Now, King David was old, advanced in years, and they put covers on him, 
but he could not get warm. So the picture that we have of David in this first chapter is of an old king. He's, it's not possible for his body to uh, generate warmth, and he is no longer the vibrant, take-charge leader that he has been. In fact, in the first part of this chapter, uh, all of the verbs related to David are passive, which is reinforces this picture that he is not active. He's not in charge of his life or what's going on around him. He has to be taken care of. He is a reactor and no longer an actor. Now, as we look at this first chapter, we have six scenes. The first scene is in the old king's bedroom and the problem of his warmth. His body just can't generate body heat anymore. So how are they going to resolve that? The second scene is the verses 5 through 10, and this introduces us to Adonijah's attempted coup. This is going on in the background while David is just wrapped up with the covers and uh, not involved in what's going on in the kingdom. He's very passive, so things are getting out of control. And then the third scene, which is really broken up into some subsections, uh, goes from 111 down to uh, 137. This is when Nathan comes to uh, Bathsheba. Now, all this is happening at the same time. Uh, while Adonijah is having this huge ceremony where he's going to be anointed as king, and we, he's got pomp and circumstance, he's brought out the chariots, he's got uh, uh, the army behind him, and, there, and the people are flocking to him, and a lot is going on. There's music, and there's trumpets blowing. All of this is going on. Nathan finds out what's going on. Nathan is the prophet, and Nathan comes to Bathsheba and says, Now, now we have to inform David. Something has to, has to pull David out of his passivity, his lethargy. We've got to get him mentally engaged, and he's just been mentally disengaged. We see this senile David here, and we've got to get him mentally engaged. So they come up with a, with a plan where first Bathsheba will go in and address David, and then while she is telling David about what's going in, Nathan will come in behind her, and he will reinforce what, what Bathsheba is telling David. And then <clears throat> once they arouse David to be engaged in the plan, then they help him uh, put together the plan and that he needs to make a quick decision to uh, proclaim Solomon as king. Now, all this has to happen very quickly because Adonijah is at that very moment being anointed and crowned king. So they have to find Solomon. They have to bring him out. They have to call. They have to... Uh, uh, bring out the other supporters. They have to get Zadok, the high priest, and Benaiah, the son of uh, Jehoiada, who is the uh, head of the military now that uh, Joab has gone over to Adonijah. They have to pull this ad hoc anointing together very quickly so that they can uh, regain the initiative. And so you see a lot of wisdom here in the way they, they react, the way they plan, and there's a lot of insights that we could go into there. But they, they act very quickly, and they gather the truth, and they go down to the Pool of Gihon, which is about a half a mile closer than where Adonijah is, which means they can get Solomon down there, they can anoint him, and they can blow the shofar 
uh, to announce the anointing of the king and pull the people to them and bring him back to the palace because he's not as far away as Adonijah. And so they can uh, come in and undercut what Adonijah is doing. And in the fifth scene, beginning in verse 41, Adonijah learns that he's been trumped. He is sitting back basking in his glory, the adoration of the people. They're beginning to celebrate and have a party, and suddenly he gets a report that the king has outwitted you, and Solomon has already been crowned king, that Nathan the prophet and Zadok the high priest are behind him, and you're in trouble. And he knows that his life is in danger. And so at the closing scene, he he uh, appeals to Solomon for grace, and he's treated in grace by, and I phrased it this way, he's treated in grace by the seed of the covenant because Solomon is demonstrating grace orientation and acting in this point as a type of Christ. He is extending grace to the usurper to give him time to show that, okay, uh, he will not be an enemy of the throne. So let's see what's happening here, because this is kind of interesting, and people read this and they think, what in the world is going on? Because this whole scene with Abishag certainly seems like it's a, it's a very strange situation. So in the first, case, first four verses, we focus on David and Abishag. Now, why is this here? Not simply to tell us that David has a problem with uh, something similar to hypothermia and he needs to be warmed by uh, another human being, which is the, the fundamentally what's going on here. But because as we get into the second chapter, the fact that Abishag is brought in at, into the king's harem uh, tells us why Adonijah wants her for his wife later on. So there's a it's a, it's a setup. You have to understand that this isn't just here to, to sort of tell us that the king had a lovely young woman sleeping with him every night. But um, there's nothing untoward about this. It was a common practice. Uh, he was not able to generate his own body warmth anymore, so his servants, in verse 2, came up with a solution. Let a young woman, a virgin, come and sleep with the king. We need to find a find a virgin for the Lord my, for our Lord the King, and let her stand before the King, which means to is an idiom for serving him, and let her care for him, and let her lie in your bosom, that our Lord the King may be warm. So, the word that we have here for virgin is the first word there, betula. There's two different words. Sometimes there's another word introduced in the discussion, and if I were teaching Isaiah 7.14, I would bring that in, but the two main words that you have in Hebrew are betula and alma. Alma is the word that is used in Isaiah 7.14. Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son. Uh, that is a, a picture of a sign. This is the sign for uh, Ahaz, and she will, um, and so it, there's some discussion as to whether this is a, just a young girl or a virgin. If you, if you're old enough to remember when the RSV came out, the Revised Standard Version in the 50s, evangelicals, conservatives were aghast because they translated virgin as a young woman. And they saw that as a liberal attack, and it was, on the virgin birth. And yet there's good reason why that word should be translated as as virgin. Now, Betula is another word, and this could refer to a virgin of any age, 
but it may also refer to a young widow, as it does in Joel 1.8. And usually when Betula is used, it has an explanatory statement, which you have here. This is the word that is used in this particular passage. Alma is a term that is that refers to a young a young virgin of marriageable age. It's never used of a married woman. When the rabbis translated Isaiah seven fourteen into the Septuagint, they used the Greek word parthenos, meaning they understood that it was a virgin. Because it wouldn't be much of a sign if a young woman got pregnant. What kind of sign is that? There's young women that get pregnant every day. So for it to be a miraculous sign, it would necessarily have to be a virgin. So Alma clearly means virgin in 714. But here we have the word betula, and the idea is it's qualified by the phrase a young woman, a na'ar, a young woman, uh, a virgin besought for our Lord the King. Now, the reason that they were looking for a virgin is, and I'm not going to embarrass anybody tonight, but I just was kind of curious how many of you husbands would want to let your, your young wife sleep with the president every night to keep him warm. <laughs> See, you're not going to want to do that. So, you know, the, the first point here is that it had to be a single woman, not a married woman, because no husband wants their, their wife sleeping with the king, the president, or any other man to keep them warm. So they would ha- she would have to be unmarried, and in that culture, a young unmarried woman would be a virgin. They were, you did not have uh, problems uh, with uh, infidelity or sexual promiscuity in that culture like you do today. A young woman would still be living in the home with her, uh, with her parents. So they were to seek for one that would be qualified to come and uh, sleep with the king. In verse 3 we read, They sought for a young woman throughout all the territory of Israel and found Abishag the Shunammite. Now Shunam is located in the north, not very far. It's a small village. It's located about 6 or 10 miles to the uh, southwest of the small village of where Nazareth would be later on. And so they found Abishag there, and they brought her to the king. And we read in verse 4 that the young woman was very lovely. The Hebrew says that she was beautiful. She was very attractive. You're just not going to go to the, for the king and find just, just any young woman. She's going to have to be attractive. She's going to have to be someone who stands out because she's um, going to be serving the king, and she will become a part of his harem, even though the text makes it very clear that there was no uh, sexual relations between the king. This was not a a relationship of, of intimacy in that nature. She was simply being used for her for her body warmth. Now this is something that is still common practice today in situations of hypothermia, that if you're up in any situation where your life is threatened by hypothermia, that is a situation where the body is unable to uh, promote warmth. This can happen in any situation where it's cold outside, especially if you get wet. If the air temperature and the water temperature uh, together add up to less than 100 degrees, then you're in a situation where you can get where you can get hypothermia. And back when I was uh, younger and used to work in wilderness camping ministries and take, would take groups up into the high country of Colorado, there were a couple of different occasions where I had people who got hypothermia. 
as a result of being in rain and being cold, and we would have to get them to, you know, usually strip down to their shorts or something as much as we could. You know, the practice is get them naked, but, you know, this is a Christian camp, so we're not going to do that. And uh, just strip them down to their shorts and T-shirts and put two people of the same sex together in a sleeping bag and bundle them up so that one person's warmth is shared with the other person. It's still a common practice. According to both uh, Galen, uh, who was a <coughs> early uh, Greek uh, physician writer on medicine, as well as Josephus in his Antiquities, it was a, a common practice at uh, up th- actually, it was common up into the into the period of the Middle Ages, but their idea wasn't so much this idea of, uh, that I just mentioned. They didn't really understand hypothermia that way. They just thought that the younger person's vigor and life would be shared with the older person, and that was their understanding and and their rationale. So this is what's going on. In this particular chapter. Now, what's interesting is that you run into a lot of uh, fanciful interpretations by the Jewish rabbis. You get a lot of uh, hyper-imaginative things among the rabbis, and they have some different interpretations here. They think that the reason this happened to David is this was God's punishment for what had taken place earlier with Bathsheba, and now God was getting back at him, and he was going to have to sleep with this beautiful young woman and uh, couldn't engage in any sort of intimate relations with her. So they have, uh, and that's written in uh, Sanhedrin 22a. They also had various other things that they tried to come up with to make all of this relate, and it just it's just kind of silly how they tried to interpret Scripture. But they brought her into the harem. That's why later on, when Adonijah is going to try to make her his wife, He's going to have to go to Bathsheba because Bathsheba was like the first wife and she is the one who is in charge of the harem. So anyway, this is the setup. And we're told that in verse 4 that the young woman was very lovely. She cared for the king and served him, but the king did not know her. Then in verse 5, the scene shifts. We're we're told this because we see this passive, out-of-touch, king who is entering into some early stages of senility and he just not in control of his family or the administration of the kingdom anymore and so one of his sons attempts to seize control and this is Adonijah in verse 5 and Adonijah had a plan he was let's look first of all to who he was in these next few verses we have the introduction of several characters and we have to know who the players are and get out our scorecards so we understand what's happening uh, in these verses. Adonijah was the fourth son of David. Uh, Amnon was the eldest, the firstborn, and he's dead. Absalom is dead. And there was another son named Kiliab who was mentioned in First Samuel, but our Second Samuel, but he apparently died young, and he is not. Uh, not in the picture. So Adonijah makes a decision that he wants to uh, reign, and he doesn't look to God or seek God's direction. He's going to make his own d- decision. And he want, he's made up his mind he's going to succeed his father. Now in verse 5 we read, Then Adonijah, the son of Haggith, this is another of David's wives, so he would be only a half-brother to Solomon, the son of Haggith exalted himself. So he's operating on arrogance 
and self-absorption. He says, I will be king. And in the Hebrew, this is Ani Amlak, which he puts Ani first when you have the, you don't have to uh, have the uh, pronoun there. If he had just said Amlak, that would communicate the same thing, I will be king. But when you add the preposition, I mean, excuse me, the pronoun, that is for emphasis and he is making a statement that he's the one, he's going to be king despite what anybody else does. He's not really concerned about anyone's, uh, anyone else's opinion. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. So he has created this huge ceremony, uh, complete with chariots and infantry, and he's got the military out, and he's going to bring, as we see down in verse 7, he's going to bring Joab with him, who is the commander-in-chief over the king's army, and he is going to bring uh, Abiathar with him, who is uh, the, the uh, high priest, and it will appear as if he has the, the, the spiritual force behind him as well as the, uh, as well as the military and he's going to be able to take over. Now, he is a product of a spoiled upbringing. There was no parental discipline. Uh, we read in verse 6, his father had not rebuked him at any time by saying, why have you done so? He, there, this is a typical example of what happens when parents don't discipline their kids. Their kids start running amok, and they operate completely on their own arrogance. They're completely self-absorbed. Furthermore, he's very good-looking, so people tended to uh, cater to him and to uh, tell him how great he was and that he's the one who uh, who should reign over the king. So he create, sets up this whole scenario where he is going to have himself crowned as the king. Now, I'm going to want to stop here because we want to hear from Eager, and so I don't want to go all the way to 9 o'clock. Next time we're going to come back, and we'll finish this section. We've just done the setup, and so there's a threat now to the throne. There's a threat to the carrying out of the Davidic promise. Who is going to succeed David? What about God? God hasn't even been mentioned yet, and God's not mentioned through the rest of the chapter. How 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 do we handle this? And so what we see here is an inter, interesting interaction and an emphasis on the importance of human volition in terms of operating within a divine viewpoint framework. When we see uh, Zadok and Bathsheba operating, they're operating within a, the known promise of God, and they know what God wants, and they're going to make decisions based on that, and then David will make decisions based on that, and that's the operation of the faith rest drill. So we'll come back next time and see how that uh, fits together and make it through this first section uh, dealing with the uh, establishment of Solomon on the throne. Let's bow our heads together. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things, to see how you work uh, covertly behind the scenes to bring about uh, your will, and that your promise stands, and that nothing that man does can ever subvert your plan or your purpose. Therefore, no matter what happens in our, <clears throat> even in our own time, what happens pol- politically may be totally against what we would like to see happen. We may see things collapse around us, but we know nevertheless that you are in control and that history does not run amok, that history follows your set plan and you will provide for us no matter what takes place on the historical scene. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.